So we are start, uh, we're continuing in our, in our sermon series on the book of Revelations. It's uh, the first three chapters, the letters to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And uh, what happened was, if, if you haven't been with us, what, what has happened in chapter one, we, realize, we read that John was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his preaching of the gospel. Because he was a Christian, he proclaimed his Christian faith and he tried to tell other people about it. And so he was, he was exiled there and, and Jesus gives him a message through his angel from God the Father to seven, the seven churches in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And uh, it, it is a, an unveiling of Jesus Christ. John's in tribulation the, the people in the churches in, in Asia Minor are in tribulation. And what does an embattled church, a church in tribulation, need? It needs an unveiling of Jesus. And so the embattled church gets an unveiling of the exalted Christ. And that's what he does in, in each of his, his messages, this letter to his churches, his preferred places among the churches, as imperfect as we are, when the word is preached, here's Jesus dwelling among us, bending our wills towards his. What does the church who is uh, in Babylon on its way to Jerusalem need? It needs an unveiling of the exalted Christ. And so Jesus gives that to them. And Sean preached for us the the unveiling to the church of Ephesus, this doctrinally prickly church who lost its love. is precise in its doctrine, but lost its love. And then last week we saw the letter to the church of, of Smyrna who was told to persevere to the end. Endure, persevere to the end because your Savior Jesus Christ loves you. He's there for you. And, and we did a little, we used a little bit of our sanctified imagination last week, and we imagined ourselves sitting there next to Polycarp and as this letter was written. And now I want to I talk to us, uh, I want us to continue that thought experiment, if you will, and, and just imagine that uh, you were that blacksmith sitting in that church, and now they tell you, look, we wanted you to take this letter from Smyrna 68 miles to Pergamum. And you, you've, already, you've already heard the letter read. You know what's coming to Pergamum. You know what's coming to the rest of the churches, but you get to make that journey. And so you take that journey. And as, as you're going from Smyrna to Pergamum and, and you, you're leaving the Aegean Sea and going inland, you, you notice uh, uh, you know, the boats coming in. And you think, man, how magnificent it is for, for boats to be going on water. How beautiful it is for them to cut through the waves and how majestic it is. And you think, as you think about the message to Pergamum, that a boat in water is both majestic and beautiful. But water in a boat is both dangerous and ugly. A boat in a water is, uh, is like sin in a church. See, because the church of Pergamum had water coming into their boat, and it's, it was in danger of, of sinking. They had uh, you know, the world getting into the church instead of the church being in the world and not of the world. And the church is a beautiful thing like a boat in the water. 
Church is a beautiful thing in the world as it stands out pristine in its testimony to the world, a watching world of that their only hope is in Jesus Christ. But when the world gets into the church, it's like water in a boat, in danger of being sunk. The church in the world is commanded by Jesus, be in the world, but not of the world. And for the church of Pergamum, though they were faithful in the face of persecution, sin was getting into the church. And as you're walking that 68 miles, you think about how they're going to receive this. And when you get there, you give the letter to the elder, and the elder stands up and reads. And as he's going through chapter 1 and chapter 2, just think of the people in the church. You know, what's, what's going to come for us, you know? Smyrna got a pretty good report. What's, about to, what's Jesus going to say to the church of Pergamum? And he, and he writes, Jesus writes to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, or you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is, this is God's word. So, remember, Jesus is writing love letters to his church, like a, a, a man on the front lines of battle writes love letters to his, 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 his loved one, his wife, and, and he reminds them of his love for them and that they should continue their love for him. These aren't sappy, sentimental letters. These are letters of holy love. And so what's happening in the church of Pergamum is both good and bad. It's mixed back, like most churches, like your life, good and bad, right? Both sin, and and if you're a Christian, both both sin and good things are happening, and and Jesus is writing a, a love letter to someone like you, to a church like ours, that we would repent of our sins and turn back to the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So Jesus is he's writing these letters to purify his church. And he wants his church to be a faithful witness and humble, and he wants them to also humbly repent. So faithfully witness and humbly repent is the message to the church at Pergamum, and it is the message, it is the message to the church here in Corvallis. Witness faithfully, repent humbly. What God calls the church of Pergamum to be is what he calls the branch to be. Faithful witnesses, humble repenters. So uh, we're just gonna, with four hooks to hang our our thoughts on from the text, and that is uh, witness faithfully and repent humbly because he is just. Because he is just. Because he knows where you dwell. Because we are wretched sinners, 
because sin is serious and Jesus is glorious, gracious. So repent humbly, Church of Pergamum, church here in Corvallis, because he is just. And here's the unveiling right from the beginning. What is the embattled church needs? It needs an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he's an unveiling of, of the one who is the lover of their souls. And what does he say to them? I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. That's what he says. I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. This is a picture of, of Jesus, his word, being wielded for judgment. In, in chapter 1, verse 16, Cameron preached about this a while back. This is God's word being wielded for for judgment, and Hebrews tells us that is the word is sharp as a two-edged sword. It's, it's able to convict and bring salvation. It's able to convict and bring judgment, depending on the response. And, and God is, Jesus is seen as one who is bearing the sword. He's seen as one who's just. And uh, man, in danger of sounding like an old dude, which I am, older than most of you. Uh, you know, Gen Z, uh, I'm not saying they're snowflakes. That's not, you guys thought I was going to say this. Not what I'm going to say. Gen Z uh, is a generation for social justice, right? Most of you out there are Gen Z. Is that right? I think, I think you are. Most of you are, are Gen Z. Am I wrong? You're all looking at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. Are you Gen Z or not? Yes? Amen or no? Yeah, no one knows. Okay, it's fine. I'm going to tell you, you're Gen Z, okay? And... Uh, and even if you're not, Gen Z is the generation for social justice. And, and social justice, uh, they, they have done surveys and they have said social justice is more important than even climate change for them. And so, friend, what I want to say to all of us who have a heart for social justice, for justice, for bringing justice to this earth, God, you, God is the one who is just. God is not only for justice, he is just. You want to know what justice looks like? You look at God. God is just and he's bringing justice now and in the future by the words of his mouth. It's like a sharp two-edged sword and later on in Revelation, he's going to come in justice and the words of his mouth are going to destroy his enemies, yours and my enemies, and the word of his mouth is going to save us. The image of the two-edged sword is the picture of justice. So what, right? Well, if you long for justice, did you ever wonder where that came from? If there in your heart is like, that's wrong, there needs to be justice, and someone needs to pay for the wrong that they've done, where did that, where did that longing for justice come from? Well, according to the Bible and Scripture, it comes from Jesus himself. He, he made you in his image, and your desire, as, as messed up as it might be at times, your desire for justice comes from God. And where does injustice come from? It comes from going against God. Then is it possible, dear friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian but you still long for justice, is it possible that God has the answers for the end of injustice. One of our problems is that we often see injustice in others, what others commit, 
while not seeing the injustice that we cause. Not only is God just, he, he, he is the one who brings justice, he also knows the injustice everyone, including you, experience. Isn't that the story you're longing for? Isn't that the good and true and beautiful story that your soul is longing for? Well, Jesus is unveiling himself as the truly just God. One with this, these are pictures, and, and, and he's bringing it with the sword, the sword of his mouth. His words are coming, and they're bringing justice. Not just for your sins. He, he, you know, he, he's a God, but he's also a God who knows about you. He's not only bringing justice, he's also a God who knows about you. You can witness faithful and repent humbly because he's a God of justice, but also because he's a God who knows, and he knows about you. He doesn't just know about your sins. He knows about your faithfulness. Dear Christian, you you who labor under the burden of trying to please Jesus by being perfect, he knows about your sins, but he also knows about your faithfulness. He knows that you have turned to him in faith. And so he turns to the church at Pergamum and he says, witness faithfully and repent humbly because God is just in bringing judgment, because he knows where you dwell. In verse 13, you can put your eyes on the text. You can, you, you, you can see that God wants faithful witnesses, and he commends the church at Pergamum for being that very faithful witness. You can be a faithful witness in the worst kinds of evil. You notice in verse 13, I know where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. It's where Satan dwells. You dwell where Satan dwells. And Pergamum was a place of great political power. They, they, they were politically savvy, and they had a, they had a seat of power in, in Asia. They also were a place of great learning. They had a library that rivaled that of, uh, of um, the libraries of, of the world. They were a place of of political power, their place of, of great learning. They were also a center for Greco-Roman worship. They were a place where all the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods came together and, and, and people were required and encouraged and, and, and cajoled to, to worship those gods. They were also a place of healing. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a god called, I'm probably going to crucify his name, but Asiplius, and, and the the symbol for the healing in Asclepius was a serpent entwined in a branch. And, and if, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, um, there are two metaphors that kind of come up. But one, one of the things we want to know is, notice is that serpent is a metaphor, is a scriptural metaphor for Satan. And, and, and Zeus had, uh, uh, they had a, a throne to Zeus there where people would come and worship this, this great god Zeus. And, the, and on the, on the thousand-foot hill behind Pergamum was this, was this throne in a, in a horseshoe shape. It was 40 meters high and 120 meters you know, in, in, its, in its shape. And people were supposed to come down and bow to Zeus. And that's probably what, we're, what John was thinking or Jesus was thinking. You could see this throne to Zeus and, and, and he's saying, this is the throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. And Nancy Guthrie says, in, in saying, I know where you dwell, perhaps he's saying, I am well aware of the vi- environment in which you are seeking to be faithful to me. 
the challenges and forces at work in the realm of your everyday life. And Pergamum's not exactly like Corvallis, but Jesus knows where you live too. We are also a place of learning. We're also a place of healing. We have a hospital and a, and a university that are major employers here. And it's not exactly the, the same cultural uh, idolatry that's going on, but Jesus knows where you dwell too. And he knows the church of Pergamon, they did not deny their faith in him, even under tremendous persecution. They did not deny their faith in him. And maybe you feel like giving up or giving in, or maybe it's not even, you know, overt persecution in your life, but it's marginalization or being pressed to the periphery, and you're, you're tempted to give in a little bit, just a little bit. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you are. He says, there are some, you're not alone in this. There are some like Antipas who is, who is a faithful witness even unto death. He was, he was a martyr. A martyr doesn't always mean death, but a martyr means a witness. There are, there are many ways to, to be a faithful witness in testifying of Jesus. But testifying of Jesus in the face of death is one of the most powerful witnesses. And Jesus, didn't Jesus say this was our life? Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and, and follow me. But if we're honest, the hardest person to die to is ourself. So what about for you? Do you need to know that Jesus knows where you dwell? And that he's calling you to be a faithful witness to him. That's what Antipas was in the, in the day even of his death. And who knows why he, we don't know exactly why he died. Maybe he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't bow to the seat of power. Or maybe he was debating the ideas in the library, in the place of learning. Or, or, or maybe he wouldn't pinch incest to the, the goddess Asiplius for healing. He wouldn't bow to Zeus. What, what is it for you? that you need to know Jesus knows where I dwell. He needs to be the one that empower you for faithful witness. Because he knows that where, where they dwell, Pergamum dwells, is also where Satan dwells. And friends, light and darkness cannot coexist. And perhaps this accentuates the idea of the witnessing church. The idea that the witnessing church will be a persecuted church. I'm not telling you to go out and look for persecution, okay? It will come to the witnessing church. And, and if it doesn't, we, we thank God for the freedom that we have to witness of him freely and, and for people not to persecute us. But don't be surprised if it comes because the witnessing church will be the persecuted church because light and darkness cannot coexist. The God of justice, the one who brings perfect justice, knows where you dwell. And he will not abandon you. He is proud of you for the way you're persevering in this world where Satan dwells. And friends, just like we sang, Satan may have a throne in Pergamum or in, in the places where we dwell, but God is on the throne. And, and, and there's a higher throne than Satan's throne. 
Satan can do nothing without God's permission. And, and while that's hard to hear at, at, at times, isn't it good to know that God works out all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose? There's a higher throne than Satan's throne. He does not finally control you or your destiny. He doesn't control anything about you. Jesus does. And he's the one that's going to bring complete and total justice. He's the one that's going to bring justice. He's the one that knows where you dwell. Friends, he also knows that we're sinners. He knows that we're wretched sinners. And in verses 14 and 15, we read of these these, these instances that seem so far away from us. So let's just, let's just try to explain them a little bit. Um, the temptations here were for idol worship and for sexual immorality. Uh, those temptations are still today. Not just a thousand years ago, not just in Balaam's time. They're for us. I, I have bad news for you. Every one of us is an idol worshiper and a sexual sinner. It's, friends, it's not those people out there. It's us. It's me. All of us are. We're wretched sinners. And while Ephesus overemphasized internal doctrinal purity, which led to a lack of concern for the outside world, Pergamum de-emphasized doctrinal purity, which led to an over-identification with the world. And so you can... You can love your doctrinal pureness and, and lose your love for Jesus and others. But you can de-emphasize doctrinal purity and over-identify with the world. And this is Jesus' love letter to you. Where, where are you at on this? Are you over-identifying? Are you de-emphasizing doctrine, which is leading to a lawless life, just leading to like not caring about God's law at all? When he says, don't worship other gods, and he says, don't be sexually immoral, do you say, well, that's not really what he meant. And so uh, Jesus brings up this, this Balaam guy and the Nicolaitans. And I'll just say, just like Sean said, we don't really know who the Nicolaitans were. We don't know exactly what their teaching was, but it had something to do with sexual immorality and idolatry. Maybe Gnosticism. We don't really know. But we do know about Balaam. If you've read the book of Numbers, Balaam's this dude who, uh, who's a, who is a prophet for hire. And uh, he's, he's hired by this guy, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. And, uh, and, and Balaam, it's an interesting story. Balaam's on this donkey and he's going. And uh, he's going to, to do his, his hired job. He's a hired hand to curse God's people. And uh, we'll get back to the donkey part. But every time Balaam was about to curse Israel, God turned the curse into a blessing. So even this false prophet, even this pagan prophet, could not curse God's people if God didn't want him to. And finally, Balaam said, look, I can't do this, but if you want to curse them, here, here's what you can do. You can send people to intermarry with them, have sexual relationships with them, and then bring your idols so they'll start worshiping other gods. That's gonna bring God's curse on them. Do that. You found a loophole. And it happens. And, and Balak you know, brought Moabite women to seduce the sons of Israel and introduce idolatrous worship and sexual immorality and God was furious with them. And this is exactly what happened. And Pergamum 
friend, and maybe the branch is letting water in the boat, just like the children of Israel. They're letting sin into their, into their church. And, there's, and you notice there's just some people who are participating in this. It's not the whole church, but the whole church is being called to purify the church. The whole church is saying, look, you're tolerating sin that should not be tolerated. Sexual immorality. They're just saying sexual immorality is okay. They've, they've rationalized it in their mind to say it's fine. Participating in the idol worship of the day, they're saying, look, I don't really mean it, but I'm just burning incense so I can get along. Wasn't it better to make the non-Christians feel comfortable with us so we can witness to them? And Jesus says, I'm coming soon if you don't repent. I'm coming. I'm coming to you, Pergamum, and I'm going to make war on the people that won't repent. This is serious. And John, Jesus, through John, is writing this letter, and he's saying, you're, you're too comfortable with your sin. Repent and turn to me. Repent. If you don't, I'm going to make war on you. So the letter to the church of Pergamum invites us to ask ourselves, what might Jesus point to in our lives as an area in which compromise threatens our witness for him and our relationship to him? Where in your life are you compromising the witness to Jesus, for Jesus, and to him? Maybe it's in your entertainment. Maybe it's in the entertainment you consume. I'm guilty. Jesus is telling us to repent. He's telling me to repent. Maybe it's in the ethical standards that you hold to. Maybe it's the, the sexual humor that you, you laugh at or you consume on entertainment. Or maybe it's the time and attention that I give and you give to sports or politics or your profession. What is Jesus saying to you? Repent, or, or I'm going to war. I'm going to bring justice. And friends, th that's hard to hear, but that is good. Jesus is, is not going to let our sin overtake us. Jesus is not going to let sin win and injustice win. What, what about for our church? What about as a group of people? Are we acting like a witness to him or a witness against him? Are we acting like an enemy or a friend? So friend, the, the illustration of Balaam as a false prophet paid to curse God's people and before he can do the job, he's on this donkey and an angel stops him. And do you remember what's in the angel's hand? Say it, if you know it. What? Everyone's like, I don't know, I shouldn't talk. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, it's a sword, right? And the angel's bringing the sword of justice and he says, Balaam, if you, if you don't do what you're commanded to do or if you try to curse God's people, I am going to slay you. And this is, the, this is the very image that Jesus is, is, is using and, and he's bringing to the church at Pergamum and to us. He's just. He's not going to let our sin have the, have the last word. 
because he's just, he's bringing judgment. He knows where you dwell. He knows you're a wretched sinner. And lastly, because sin is serious and Jesus is gracious. Sin is serious and Jesus is gracious. Friends, it's a, it's a serious call to repent. It means to turn, to change course, to go away from one thing you're trusting or from sinning to, to Jesus alone and trust him alone. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again as a, as a, a human being. It, it means that you continually go back to him. And that's what he's calling the church of Pergamum. And that's what he's calling the branch to, you, sitting in those chairs. That's what he's calling you to. It's a serious call, but it's a gracious call. He's giving them another chance. So he gives you another chance. He's speaking to you about something right now. If the Spirit of God dwells in your heart, he's speaking to you about something, something you're holding on to that doesn't belong in your life or in our church, like water in a boat. He's giving you an opportunity to repent, to turn into trust. So he makes this promise that he's gonna bring judgment. He's going to bring justice. Verse 17, to those who will not repent, he is coming to the church. He's going to war against them and the false teachers with the sword of his mouth. He will bring judgment. It will be swift and just. But that's not the only promise he makes. Friends, he he also promises the, the, the hidden manna and the white stone. Now, to those who conquer, who of you have read that and been like, not sure what that is. <laughs> uh, that was me on Monday. Uh, look at it like, okay, I'm glad to have hidden manna and white stone, but I'm not exactly sure how that's a promise of blessing to me. So if he promises justice to those who will not repent, what does he promise to those who will repent? What about you who are sitting there thinking, man, I'm holding on to this sin and I, it's been a long time and I just want to turn to Jesus for this. What will he give you? What will he give the repenter? Because he will give you grace. He will give you forgiveness. He gives you this everlasting fellowship and a new name. He'll give you the hidden manna and the white stone. For those who repent, that is what it means to conquer. I think in in this passage, the one who conquers is the one who endures in repenting and turning to Jesus alone. He will give the hidden manna. And if if you followed the storyline of scripture at all, you will see that when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he redeemed them and rescued them and brought them through the waters of judgment onto the other side. And they were in the wilderness and they were about to be hungry and thirsty. What did he rain down from heaven? He rained down manna from heaven for them, bread to feed their weary souls. And if they would collect the bread uh, and do as God said, they would eat and they would be satisfied and they'd be kept. And God was raining down grace but we know that that bread was, was just temporary. It pointed to someone else. It didn't point to something else. It pointed to someone else, the one who is the bread of life. The manna wasn't about physical bread. When we take the Lord's table, it's, this physical bread doesn't do anything for you. It pictures what has been done for you in Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And there's a story about when the children of Israel are hidden, uh, are, are heading into exile. That Jeremiah took some of the manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant for later, so that the children of Israel, when they returned from exile, would have grace. They would have the hidden manna, and we think this is probably what he's talking about. 
you have the hidden manna. It's, it's eternal fellowship with God. Fe- f- fellowship, but it's a meal with God. An everlasting meal with, with Jesus, the one who has the sword of justice, the double-edged sword. He's coming with bread for you. And he has a white stone, a ceremonial stone called uh, a, a tessera. It had a, a number of different meanings, and, and each could be applied to those who overcame, who conquered, who were victorious by the blood of the Lamb, those who continually repented and put their trust in him. And, and there's three different images. One, one was a, a prize for the champion of athletics. They get a white stone as a prize. Here you go. It meant a lot. You overcame. You won the race. The other image is, is one of invitation for a feast. It's like, a, it's like an Evite, Right? They, they gave you the invitation, and if you didn't have the invitation, you weren't welcome. But if you had it, come on in. Come on in to the, to the feast and the festival. And, and, and the last image is the acquittal in the courts of law. One of the ways the jurors voted on who, who was guilty or who was not guilty is by the white or black stone. You had a black stone, guilty. White stone, not guilty. And don't you see how all of these images go into this beautiful picture that Jesus is telling you that if you repent of your sins and turn to him, you have the prize, everlasting life. You have an invitation to the feast, not just this feast, but the everlasting feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, the white stone is your invitation. It's the, it's the work Jesus has done for you. And you have been acquitted in the court of God's law, not Guilty. When God looks at you, if you've repented, what does he do? Does he give the black stone or the white stone? And you're tempted to think, I deserve the black stone. I haven't done anything good enough to deserve the white stone. But Jesus, God looks at Jesus' righteousness for you and he says, not guilty. Acquitted. Acquitted. <laughs> And because you're acquitted, because you're justified, because of Jesus' righteousness, you have this prize, you have this invitation to come, to come into fellowship with Jesus, and you get the everlasting name. I, I, I don't know what the name written on the stone is, but it it's probably has to do with your adoption. When adoption happens, you get a new name. That's what happens in baptism. In the sacrament of baptism, when, when, when someone is dunked out of the water and, and brought back up, it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and, and God putting his name on you. You're acquitted. You're welcome to the feast. You have the prize. So endure to the end, dear brother and sister. Endure to the end. In a few moments, we're gonna sing a song called The Look. And... Uh, it was written by a man named John Newton. John Newton was born in 1725, and he, became, he was a wretched sinner and knew himself to be. John Newton's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And John Newton, John Newton became a captain of a slave trade ship. And at, at one time, uh, he was wrecked at sea, and actually he became a slave himself. So his dad sent someone to rescue him. And in, 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 the ride, in the boat ride back, the, 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 the boat wrecked and water was getting in the boat. And John Newton, hanging on for dear life, cries out to Jesus, please be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. 
I trust the depths of your mercy. And Jesus saves him, and he radically changes him. And, and John Newton was uh, forever changed by this. And so he wrote this song called The Look. And it, it describes two looks. When John Newton first saw Jesus on the cross symbolically, the look was condemnation. I, I nailed him there. I deserve that death that he got. But the second look, the look of kindness, the look of gentleness, the look of one who looks on you with grace, was a look of love. Was a look of, was a look of well done, good and faithful servant. Was a look of you're invited to the feast. So friends, as we, as we take the Lord's table, this, this bread and this cup represents, is it represents the hidden man. It represents God's body, Jesus' body broken for you. It represents his blood poured out for you. His death represented in this cup is the, is the cup of, uh, of blessing because he drank the cup of God's wrath for you. And so as we take it, be reminded that uh, those who endure to the end, those who conquer by repenting and turning to Jesus will have everlasting life, will forever be feasting and, and, and partying with Jesus because they're acquitted by his love. Let's pray.